Father, I thank you for Bill. I thank you for the time that he has today to just point us to Christ. Father, thank you so much for him. Father, we also want to thank you so much for the country that we live in. And Lord, how much you have blessed us. Give us wisdom and insight in how to best follow you as a country. And Lord, we want to thank you for all that you've done. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Appreciate thank you. you very much. Take a look at one verse of scripture in Peter's first letter, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp upon my path. Yesterday, we celebrated America's 244th birthday. It was hardly our most enjoyable and memorable occasion. Wrapped by riots and racial turmoil, cataclysmic economic upheaval, political mayhem, together with the monstrous medical and social effects of a pandemic, not many of us felt like celebrating. The United States of America, some pundits are proclaiming that at no time in our national history since the Civil War have we been so divided as we are right now. As a country, we have been painfully confronted with the reality that there is plenty we need and must change in order to make the American dream a reality for every man, woman, and child, and do it in such a way that it's not at the expense of the rest of the planet. But on this Sunday, the day after America's birthday, I'd like for us to remember something good and right about the USA. It's namely this. We live in a country that affirms our right to have dual citizenship. We go by the name American, but we also go by the name Christian. We are citizens of this country, but we are also subjects of a kingdom. We live in a democracy, and yet we are governed by a king, the Lord of Lords. We pledge allegiance to the flag, but our ultimate loyalty is reserved for a cross. Now, sure, this causes us some problems time to time, and it should. But at the very least, we do live in a country where it is permissible. We are free to have this dual citizenship. As a matter of fact, our nation was founded on this very principle. 
Now, in our present radical, excessive separation of church and state in this present day, I want us to remember that our government has always maintained that Americans should and could have this dual citizenship. And that this dual citizenship should always be evident in our society and in our government. We have always affirmed this. I want you to listen again to the famous words of Abraham Lincoln. These were delivered at Gettysburg. We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Did you hear that? This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. That is the only way we will truly be free as a people and as a nation to be under God. Because ultimately, it is God, not the government, who gives us freedom. Now, nobody understands this any better than Sergei Kordakov, who as a young man worked for the KGB in the former Soviet Union. He led a bunch of thugs who invaded religious gatherings and beat up the worshipers. Kordakov was an orphan. And one of the first Christians he ever met was another boy at his orphanage, the deacon as the other boys nicknamed him. Now, the deacon had living parents, but because these parents had taught their children the Christian faith, the state declared them unfit and stripped them of all parental rights, taking the children away from them forever. Now, Kordakov, in his book, The Persecutor, tells how the witness and the influence of the deacon, together with other Christians that God brought into his life, eventually led to this fellow's conversion. And it's a marvelous story. It was written back in the early six, or late 60s, early 70s. But in this book, Kordakov said some rather prophetic things concerning this struggle between Christianity and communism. He said Christianity will win in the long run because its end is better and its means are better. I grant that our methods seem slower, more unwieldy than those of the communists. Theirs are more revolutionary. Ours are more evolutionary. But in the end, the method of Jesus will win. But it will not be by chance, but because we give ourselves more completely to his power and we have a better method for lifting fallen humanity to full humanness. Not because we have a more powerful missile, but because we have a more powerful master. Now history has proven him true. There is that which the Prince of Peace can do for humanity, which no government can. Making humanity what it was meant to be is a task for God, not the government. Because only in Jesus is there a power that can save humanity from evil, both out there in the world and in the human. Now, supposedly, all governments at their best want to get the man out of the slum. But the other tougher dilemma is this. How do you get the slum out of the man? And only our master makes both possible. And we Americans above all other people are free to work with our master and in our government and through our churches at both. 
Now, no, we don't have a perfect record. But in this country, we are at least free. As Jesus said, to go out into the fields white with harvest, to proclaim and live out the gospel to the poor. People who are poor economically and people who are poor also spiritually. And God sent us, again, Jesus quoted it, to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord. Turn our backs on the hungry and the poor, the downtrodden and the forgotten, God forbid. Ignore the oppressed and the depressed, heaven help us. Do you think it mere coincidence that America has a statue out in its leading harbor that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore? Send me these homeless, the tempest tops. To me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Our task as American Christians, is to help people experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, but not through just a political and economic system, but by introducing them to the Savior who ultimately is the one who provides these things. Now, we Americans, more than any other Christians in God's kingdom, are free to do that. And we can do it if we're committed to the task. If we are committed to the task. Now, how committed to the task are we? Well, to be truthful, some of the statistics are dismal. Did you know American women spend more each year on cosmetics than all of Christendom does on foreign missions. Did you know that American cats and dogs receive better nutrition and a more balanced diet than nearly one half of the people on this planet? Did you know that of all the world starving, and I'm talking about those people on planet Earth right now who are starving to death this very minute, do you know that we could feed them all, we could keep them alive if we would just convert the food production for them, the acres involved, the agricultural resources that we are currently consuming on the manufacturing of beer? That's all it would take. Now, as American citizens, and as Christians with this dual citizenship, let's acknowledge when and where our nation falls short of our high calling. And let's confess our own complicity and carnality. And the good news is we're free to do it. We are free to speak out. We can admit our faults, our frailties, our failures, and we can work for constructive change. 
Let's think on this in two ways. First, an individual one. We've got a man, he's standing at the crossroads. He's facing a moral crisis. He knows perfectly well there are two ways that are stretching out from the point where he stands. He knows perfectly well that there is a moral crisis in his life. Now, there is one way of temporal advantage, and there's another way of eternal vantage. Now, these things are not always necessarily forever antagonistic against each other. But let's say the hour comes in this man's life, they're in opposition. Which will the man do? Now a national one. Let's say the hour comes in the history of a nation when there are two ways that lie out before her. One is the way of righteousness. The other way is just revenue. Now again, those things are not always in conflict. But let's imagine in this particular hour in the life of this nation, these two are in opposition. This is the hour of destiny for that country. Which will the nation do? Now, in both cases, the people of God must answer the clear, unmistakable voice of our master, calling us as persons and as a people to a higher destiny as the children of God. Whenever we see evil, if it's in our society, if it's in our government, and especially when it's in ourselves, we must speak out, stand up, and act against it. Oppression, racism, greed, hate, indifference, hunger, disease, all of these should find an overwhelming enemy in an individual Christian and in a Christian nation. We are the ones who should be crying out against evil, wickedness, regardless of when and where and however we find it, whether we're talking about our interpersonal relationships or our international relations. Do you want to know why? Because, as Peter says, we are the chosen generation. We are to be a royal priesthood. We are to be a holy nation and a peculiar people who will not tolerate anything less than obedience and submission to the will of God. Now, that's to be true of us as individuals. It's to be true of us as a church. And people, it's got to become true. Has to of our society, in our nation, in this world. Because as we sing in that hymn, this is my father's world. And it's our job as his children to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're here. That's why we're free to counter this fallen culture. Whenever we as individuals or as a nation fail to live up to our Lord's commands. De Tocqueville of France, well over, this is over 100 years ago. He visited America and then he returned to France. He wrote, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. It wasn't there. I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her fertile fields and boundless forests. It wasn't there. 
I sought for the greatness and genius of America and her rich minds and her vast world commerce. It was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America and her public school systems, her institutions of higher learning. It was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America and her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, but it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Tocqueville nailed it. We will be strong. We will be free as a people only as we are good. And we will be good as a people only as we believe in and we are dependent upon Almighty God. And folks, here in his first epistle, the Apostle Peter proclaims that you are the priests of God. Now personalize that. Regardless of where you are and what you're doing, priest, make sure your pulpit is flaming with righteousness. Then and only then will we be free. During our revolution, there were many Europeans, rank, high class, education, and they were enamored with the romanticism of the day, and so they offered their services to the Continental Army with the idea that ours was a noble endeavor to throw off tyranny, bring freedom, liberty, and self-rule to the world. And some of them were more than valuable. They were indispensable to us and our cause. You take Lafayette, the young Frenchman who was the friend of George Washington, or Padruski, the Pole, and certainly Manfred von Steuben, the German who formed our ragtag militia into a standing army during those dark days and months at Valley Forge. But others of them saw this pursuit of liberty as some romantic lark, not visualizing the bullets and the bayonets of the British and the bloody reality and horrors of war. And so when it was time for heroic service and sacrifice, many of them turned tail and ran back home to the mother country. So when this little ragtag American army was in places of greatest danger, General Washington always gave these instructions. Put only Americans on guard tonight. You know, I want us to imagine... God in heaven looking down on earth just before evening during a dark time for his kingdom and for Christianity all over the world. And imagine if he saw our nation 
as a true Christian land, striving to do nothing else but his will. How glorious it'd be, how glorious if God could turn to his angels watching over the world and he could say to them, put only Americans on guard tonight. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Pray with me. God Almighty, because of what your Son did for us on Calvary's cross, because of an outpouring of your grace, especially on this country, forgive us as a people and as a person for the times when we have failed to live up to our calling by the strength and power of your spirit in us God help us to bring your kingdom here even as it is in heaven Amen